Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. We are delighted to welcome as our guest this week, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist, Brett Stevens. Thanks one and all for being here. Good to join Let's you. get started. Uh, as deaths from coronavirus exceed 143,000 in the United States, with new case totals daily racking up above 70,000, Uh, And as jobless claims are rising again after a lull of about four months, President Trump has resumed his White House briefings on the subject, Uh, but uh, he has found a way to change the subject away from coronavirus, claiming that Portland, Oregon was totally out of control and worse than Afghanistan, Trump deployed federal forces into the center city to quell rioters. And he has promised to do the same in Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, Albuquerque, Detroit, and other cities the president says are run by the, quote, radical left, unquote. Damon Linker, you had a piece about this uh, in the week where you you think this is uh, incitement. Yeah, I do. I mean, we all are familiar with, you know, political tactics in a campaign where you you might try to goad your opponent into uh, overreacting on their own side in order to demonstrate that they're more extreme uh, than they might otherwise uh, like to portray themselves. And then you say to your own side, aha, look, and you want independence people, the, the independent voters who haven't made up your minds yet, look at how extreme that other side is. You have to stick with me. What Trump is doing is trying to mix that kind of slightly, you know, dirty pool form of politics that is fairly common and mix it with policy in a way that is, I think, quite incendiary. I mean, if you look at maps, the unrest in Portland, which is somewhat distasteful, I think it's gone on too long. Portland has for a long time been a a hotbed of Antifa violence and so forth that I don't approve of. But the, the protests that are going on right now are taking place in a two block by three block area of downtown Portland. That's a total of six square blocks. And that's it. It's a metro area of 2.5 million people. You can live a mile away from where this is happening and you would have no idea there was anything unusual going on. And Trump is using this as a pretext to send in these sort of the, the, I mean, most people, when they heard the story this week, I think had probably never heard of this kind of SWAT team version of the border patrol that usually looks into drug smuggling. And they're now being deployed in the center of an American city, uh, engaging in acts of violence against the protesters, uh, taking them, throwing them in unmarked vans. The, the, the people doing it don't have proper badges saying their names or where they, what they work for. And so it's, it, it seems like an attempt of Trump to make things worse. Now, I don't think the Portland mayor has been doing such a great job at getting the things under control, but the goal, I think, has been de-escalation, whereas Trump's goal is escalation. And the idea of sending 
similar troops to places like Philadelphia, where I live. We, we haven't had a serious protest in like three weeks here. So I, I don't understand what that would be uh, an attempt to do other than start trouble so that Trump can then say, aha, look, there's violence that you need to turn to me, Mr. Law and Order, to fix. But the violence will be just as much a product of his own actions as anything that was already going on on the ground. Brett, I don't uh, disagree with anything Damon just said, but I I would like to talk a little bit about the traditional progressive and or left side of the spectrum and the way they respond to these stories, because there is a theme. Namely, whenever they talk about protests slash riots, there there is never violence. It's always, you know, when, when there can be video of people setting fires and throwing projectiles and uh, and and uh, shining lasers, as there was in uh, in Portland. And the press, uh, the, the uh, progressive people, will report it as mostly peaceful. Um, and uh, even Joe Biden, uh, just a day or so ago, said that uh, he was appalled because people are demanding change peacefully and respectfully. But that isn't quite the whole story, is it? I mean, there really is violence going on and, uh, and, and there is destruction, right? I mean, that can't be whitewashed. Well, I mean, you're putting me in mind of my favorite joke, which uh, appears in a Milan Kundera novel from, uh, from the 1970s, The Book of Laughter and Forgetting. And uh, in, the, in the joke, uh, a man is throwing up in the central square of Prague, uh, clearly violently ill, and another man goes up to him, sort of puts a, puts a caring hand on his shoulder and says, I know just what you mean. Um, <laughs> uh, and that kind of, the reason that, that joke is always in my mind is that's sort of the way I've been feeling about American politics in general for uh, <sighs> at least the last four years, which is yeah. to say, I am nauseated by Trump's tactics. I think they are, no, they're not fascism, but they are fascistic. Um, I am nauseated by the way in which um, the right, which uh, last I checked was a great believer in federalism and in allowing states to sort of find their own solutions to their own dilemmas, has suddenly gotten behind the idea of um, essentially this federalized uh, police force that, you know, is, is reminiscent of the little green men who took over Crimea five or six years, uh, years ago. But um, look, you, you're right. I saw my neighborhood in New York City uh, absolutely trashed. It looked as if a hurricane had gone through it, um, but it was, it was really the looting and violence that followed in the wake uh, and mixed in with the peaceful protesters. And there is this inability on the left, I think much to its own detriment, to um, A, appreciate that reality, appreciate the extent to which um, the protests have become a slipstream for far more unsavory characters to uh, simply trash cities and ter terrify, uh, 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 terrify people. Um, and, and it's what the left also, I think, fails to recognize, this is the second part, is just how destructive it is to 
um, everything they are advocating, which uh, has um, resonance with the American public, which is on the side of a more just and more equitable society. So not only is, is it appalling to see what Trump is doing, but I am equally appalled to see so many voices on the left effectively doing Trump's work for him by pretending that there isn't a serious and growing problem with law and order and that it isn't connected uh, in some way, not directly, but in some way to the, uh, to the national protest movement. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm that man on Wenzler Square in Prague, not knowing <laughs> in which direction to throw up. Right. Um, so this ties in, Bill, with um, we, what we discussed last week with cancel culture and so forth. Um, if you look at the views of most Americans based on polling, you will find that the views of uh, the um, left of the Democratic Party, the uh, defund the police crew and uh, the people who are uh, leading the protests in Portland and so forth, uh, they, they are not representative of the country and not even of the Democratic Party. So, for example, uh, Gallup uh, just came out with a poll, showed very few Americans support abolishing the police. <laughs> Big shock, right? 15% of the total, only 22% of blacks. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, 58% say major changes are needed. But um, isn't it worrisome uh, I mean, things look good in terms of the polling for Biden, but isn't it a little worrisome that the press is so locked, not not the right wing press, of course, but the but the liberal progressive press is so lockstep in never wanting to criticize a rioter, never, never seeing a riot. They just they, they don't exist. Just as on Fox, that's all that exists. Uh, Mona. Uh. <laughs> I'm with I'm with Brett and the guy in Prague. Yeah. Uh, I've spent the past 35 years of my life, you know, trying to defend what I think of as the progressive center of American politics. And one of the first principles is, you know, you don't get anywhere denying reality. Uh, and you know, I'm against distortions of reality wherever they occur because you can't make sound policy and you certainly can't persuade the American people if you're asking them to believe things that they can see with their own eyes not to be true. I mean, this is not complicated. So, and, uh, and, and what distresses me is that to an extent that most people don't appreciate it would be not only productive, but easy to govern this country from the center because they're contrary to all the reports about you know, intractable polarization. And I've written some of those reports. <laughs> uh, uh, in fact, on many of the most contentious public issues, there is a center of political gravity you know, to which at least 60% of the American people across party lines regularly repair. Uh, and I absolutely agree with you. you know, I think most people, most people say, you know, 
no to police misconduct, no to defunding the police, yes to peaceful protest, no to violence and disorder. And it's not as though it's not as though one of those polls denies the other. They can both be true at the same time. But then there's a third truth, which is the heart of the matter and which is rarely articulated in a way that gets through to people. So I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Uh, it's just one, one more sign of a dece- diseased and disordered public discourse. Yeah, Linda, you had a really good column about these matters this week in Real Clear Politics. Um, you know, the the point uh, that Bill was just making um, is similar to one that the uh, Democratic political analyst uh, David Shore made in a tweet and lost his job for retweeting the, we, t- we might have talked about the, this last week in our discussion of cancel culture, he retweeted the research of a of a black, as, as it happens, a black academic um, who, uh, who noted that during the 1960s, uh, violent protests uh, tended, to fa- tended to improve the electoral prospects of Richard Nixon and peaceful protests tended to improve the prospects of Democrats. And for that, he was forced to A, make a basically Maoist kind of, you know, apology and, and begging forgiveness for this. And then he never, he eventually lost his job. He's since, by the way, given a really long and interesting interview to New York Magazine, and he reveals himself to be a really hardcore left winger. And, you know, it really, the, the, the expression, the revolution eats its own does seem apt here. I think that's true, Mona, but I think we need to also look at this in terms of the political campaign that's going on. Because if you want to know why it is that these people are being sent out, mostly from the Department of Homeland Security, but some other agencies as well, and why they're being dispersed to certain cities, I absolutely believe that this is a campaign ploy, that we are going to see lots and lots of footage of uh, the kinds of protests we've seen in Portland and with uh, the federal forces being uh, looking like they are fighting off hordes of angry rioters uh, and that this is going to be used uh, in the Trump campaign. I was particularly struck by the president's dispensing uh, forces to Albuquerque, New Mexico. As you know, as most of my friends know, uh, my family's lived in New Mexico since 1601. We, you know, that's where we're from. I know that community well. And so when I saw that, I got on the telephone with relatives and friends in New Mexico and said, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Am I missing something? I haven't seen those kind of Portland riots. Yeah, there was the riot pulling down the statue of the explorer Oñate, who led the expedition uh, into New Mexico in 1601. Um, and, you know, there was some, you know, some somebody was arrested. There were, you know, th- there was a, uh, a protest that, that did get violent there. But I haven't seen much since. So I said, are you, you know, are you locked in your homes? Are you afraid to go downtown? What's going on? Nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing is going on. Um, there was a murder of a woman um, who was killed um, actually in November of 2019. Uh, she was uh, killed in her 
front doorway. Um, she was um, apparently getting into her car. Two of her sons are state police officers, and she had uh, and Trump had the uh, widowed husband and uh, to the two sons, as well as the sheriff of Bernalillo County, Manny Gonzalez. Uh, in, at the uh, White House when, when they were announcing this uh, new federal force. There is a problem going on right now in, in cities. Um, Albuquerque, New Mexico has always had a higher crime rate than should be normal for that part of the world. I mean, it's substantially higher, for example, than Denver, Colorado. They have a big problem with drugs and a big problem with gangs. In Chicago, you know, there was this horrific killing uh, and, the, uh, and sh- horrific killings. And then this shooting that took place after one uh, man was killed uh, at his funeral. There were 15 people who were shot outside the funeral home. So there is an uptick in violence. And I think Chicago violent crime has gone up 51% this year. It's still not at the historic levels that it was uh, back at the you know high point of, of crimes from the 60s through the early 90s. But there is crime going on. So if, if President Trump wanted to be helpful, he would be getting Bill Barr and others, uh, the DEA, the FBI, others to sit down with local officials and say, how can we help you? But that's not what he's doing. He's mm-hmm. not doing that at all. And what he is doing is likely to incite protests that will provide the kind of pictures that I guarantee you will find their way into Trump campaign. Apparently, you know, one of the figures, uh, one of the pictures they used in a, in a recent ad turned out to be Ukrainian uh, pro-democracy protesters. So they had to pull that. It was presented as as violence on America's streets. Right. And it was actually from Ukraine. That's yeah, correct. Actually from Ukraine. So, yes. so they, they want to get some real photos from real American cities. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I don't think it's uh, an accident they're going to Albuquerque. They want to drive some divisions uh, in the Hispanic community. Trump does much better among Hispanic voters than he does among African Americans. There has always been tension that people don't like to talk about between these two communities. So, um, you know, I think there some of that is going on too. this trying to to incite interracial antagonisms as well as um, the kind of antagonisms we see where he's trying to just appeal to his white voters. Um, uh, Three quick points. One, in addition to this uh, story about the uh, pictures from Ukraine. Uh, Remember, in 2016, the president, I think his first campaign ad that ran on television, um, featured images of um, lots and lots of people swarming a border fence. And uh, this was represented as being Mexicans trying to come into the United States. Those pictures were from Morocco. Um, (laughs) Well, you know, Moroccans, Mexicans, they all sort of look alike to to Donald Trump. Yep, it it worked once, so they're they're going back to the well. Um, Another thing we should not uh, forget to mention while we're um, discussing this is that Chad Wolf, the acting head of the Department of Homeland Security, Uh, said the wonderfully Orwellian, he gave an Orwellian explanation about their actions. He said that the uh, federal um, law enforcement was acting proactively, proactively. So, you know, that that means arrest people before they commit crimes, I guess. Um, 
<laughs> that that works very well. And um, I would also note, though I have acknowledged and, and itemized the ways in which there was real violence in Portland and in other cities, but the uh, the violence was was calming down before the feds arrived. And um, the Department of Homeland Security under Secretary or Acting Secretary Wolf has issued a series of um, press statements about the provocation that led to the uh, placement of all of these heavily armed federal troops in riot gear and, and, uh, and, and uh, so forth uh, and in unmarked vehicles. Um, and if you go down the list, it's amazing. Violent anarchists graffitied the BPA building. Violent anarchists graffitied the Hatfield courthouse. Violent anarchists, blah, blah, blah. It goes on that way for page after page after page. Um, now, first of all, I don't know how they know that they're anarchists. And as for the violence, the violence appears to be almost exclusively graffiti. Uh, there are very few other crimes mentioned. So, so there we are. All right. Uh, let us now uh, move on to um, discussion of foreign policy. Um, today, um, at some time this afternoon, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is scheduled to give a speech outlining the U.S. response to China and the threat from China. This comes on the heels of uh, closing the Chinese consulate in Houston. Uh, where officials there held a little bonfire in the courtyard. Um, I, um, I'll turn to you, Brett. Um, how do you evaluate the, this president's approach to China? This, it's one of his great talking points, boasting rights, that uh, he's been the first president to be tough on China in decades. Um, how do you think it's going? Well, from what we um, know from... Uh, John Bolton's memoir. Uh, he's also the first president who seemed to have uh, elicited um, or solicited uh, uh, favors from the uh, Chinese president for his own uh, reelection. So the the tough on China line has to be put into some perspective with the. Uh, obsequious and uh, unpresidential, um, if not outright impeachable conduct. Look, I've always felt, uh, let me make two points that are somewhat at variance with one another, uh, and hopefully I'll make sense of them. I've always felt that the true American policy ought to be to encourage Chinese economic growth through uh, trade ties, through uh, by by doing by by encouraging China's rise as an economic power, and at the same time, um, acting powerfully against China's uh, nationalistic um, and expansionary uh, instincts. And broadly speaking, albeit with some uh, uh, some exceptions, the American policy under Trump has been precisely the opposite. We have waged a trade war against China, admittedly in the face of unfair Chinese trade uh, practices and outrageous behavior on, in, in terms of intellectual property theft. Um, and at the same time, we have done relatively little to stop China's uh, encroachments 
uh, in, uh, with its neighbors. If anything, we have sent fatal signals as recently as the last few days uh, to the Chinese that we are not interested in guaranteeing the security um, of our East Asian partners, um, either by haggling over the price of American uh, support and Amer the American presence in uh, South Korea, by talk about uh, uh, diminishing our the strength of our alliance with uh, uh, with uh, Japan, uh, that by by especially by the the overtures to North Korea that has sent a signal of weakness to the Chinese. So my, my view of the Trump policy, that is to say President Trump, not Mike Pompeo, has been that it's more or less the opposite of what I think an enlightened policy is. Now, that being said, one has to take into account the fact that Xi Jinping is qualitatively a different leader from Hu Jintao, to say nothing of uh, going back to Deng Xiaoping. That is to say, he is much more of a leader in the mold of Mao Zedong um, than he is of the reformist leaders that, that uh, came after Mao. And so we are dealing with a more hostile China uh, and a more reckless China. And any president, whether it's going to, whether Trump is reelected or Biden comes to office, is going to simply have to deal with the reality of a China that's not quite uh, prepared or isn't prepared at all, in fact, to uh, play by the rules. Question, obviously, I mean, my, my own view is that the right policy is to send every signal that we intend to um, be true to our commitments to our allies, that we intend to um, honor the rule of law in places like the South China Sea by insisting on um, freedom, of, uh, 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 freedom of navigation. But there, we're not looking to um, impoverish China or impede its economic uh, uh, progress. That is, I think, uh, a, a fairly dismal recipe. And we ought to ask ourselves in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a profound recession, um, how just how wise is it to um, potentially find ourselves in a position of inevitable confrontation with the world's uh, second uh, second most most formidable military power. I just think that we're acting extraordinarily imprudently uh, and we are um, sort of stumbling toward crisis uh, in a way that, you know, I, I don't think we've done since maybe the 1930s. But what about the fact that China uh, is clearly seeing an opportunity here? They are you know, clamping down on Hong Kong, crushing Hong Kong, and they are making aggressive moves about Taiwan. Now, they've done that before, but they're doing exercises. Maybe they mean it. You mentioned this Chinese president is different. What should the U.S. do in response? What would an enlightened leader do in this moment to counter uh, that kind of aggression? You know, I wrote a column about this about a month ago. One of the things I would do is authorize a very large arms sale to the Taiwanese, both to, to strengthen their defenses, which they've been neglecting for the last 20 or so years, and also as a brushback pitch um, in the wake of the security law imposed on uh, Hong Kong. I think Boris Johnson has taken the right attitude in uh, looking to extend uh, um, citizenship and res residency opportunities to Hong Kong people in the wake of um, China's violation of the 
uh, Sino-British uh, Act of uh, 1984. And I think the United States, of course, this is so opposite the president's view, the United States would be doing itself a huge favor if it simply announced that um, any Hong Kong person who wants um, a, uh, an American, uh, not a green card, but at least a residency permit of some kind, a visa, uh, can get one simply by, by going to the American uh, uh, consulate. And we should not be haggling with South Korea over the price of our, uh, of our presence there. Our, our 20 or so thousand troops in South Korea are a tripwire not only to Kim Jong-un, but they're a sign of our intention to remain the security guarantor to the democracies of uh, the Far East. So in effect, I guess what I'm recommending is nearly the opposite of the policy the Trump administration has pursued. I should say that I think Mike Pompeo's view of things is also the opposite of his own president, but that's um, that's that's an entirely different topic from the one that we're addressing. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, Damon, I think you are a skeptic of um, America's uh, world role, and uh, so I'm wondering how you react to Brett's thoughts on this. Well, I'm not, I mean, my own view is sort of, I sort of come at, uh, at an odd angle to these conversations because I agree with some things, but not on others. And most of the disagreement comes from believing that our calculations in these matters should be based very much in terms of national interest defined a little bit more narrowly than they sometimes are when uh, it's couched in terms of kind of a moral commitment of the United States. And I didn't hear a lot of that in what Brett was saying. So kind of at the level of principle, I'm not really disagreeing with very much. I would say, though, as more I think of a foreign policy realist, perhaps, than, uh, than Brett may be, that um, some of what he was saying about his kind of general outlook that we should be standing up to China and its territorial ambitions as a, as a growing world power while trying to enhance its economic growth, I do think that that is a nice statement of what American policy has been in that part of the world since at least the early 90s. And I think it has not worked out and we're living with the consequences of that right now. And so I think it needs a pretty radical rethink. I don't exactly know what it should be, but if when it is done, it needs to be done in terms of realizing that the stronger China becomes economically, the more likely they are going to want to extend their military sphere of influence in their own region. In the course of world history, that is the norm the exception to the norm is what happened in Europe and Japan after World War II, but that was a function of the fact that we utterly pummeled both of them and then took over their defense. And so in return for them not having to spend very much of anything of their own GDP to defend themselves, they were given the freedom to try to become rich under our protective umbrella. Obviously, that is not the situation with China, where they have their own national interests that often collide with ours. So as they become stronger, as they rise in the world with our economic help over these last few decades, it is not surprising that they now are starting to say things like, hey, that island uh, less than 100 miles off the coast that we have this very tense history with, why is it that you, the United States, from the other side of the world are telling us that we can't do what we want there? This is our territory and we need, we, we need the freedom 
to pursue our interests as any major power does. And so in that sense, I fear that we may be on a collision course with China in the medium term, regardless of the mistakes Trump is making or his successor may make. Brett, did you want to respond to that? Yeah, I don't want to um, get into a long debate with Damon. And I think all the points he makes are you know, really uh, thoughtful. I, I just want to offer a thought, which is that um, it is often powers that understand they are in decline that are militarily the most truculent, not powers that understand that they are uh, on the rise. And there has been a lot of evidence for some time that China's economy is nowhere near as robust as um, its manufactured statistics make it, uh, make it seem. Um, China, since 1976, the Communist Party has uh, rested its case, so to speak, with its people on two separate bases. Um, one is that it has promised to provide economic growth, and the other is simple nationalism. And to the extent that Chinese economic growth has really, um, uh, I think, been much slower than uh, most people think in the last few years, um, that has that has coincided with its much more nationalistic turn. And I just fear that policies involving trade wars by the United States or, or deliberate efforts to um, seriously retard China's economic growth might have um, the opposite of the intended effect rather than weakening uh, or, or rather than really weakening the system or the regime's grip, on the country, it is emboldening them to seek military answers to economic problems. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm offering a, a hypothetical, Damon might be right, um, but there's plenty of historical evidence that suggests that things sometimes move in the opposite direction. Fair enough. Bill, you wanted in on this? Yeah, uh, I wanna make two points. Point number one, Whatever we decide to do, we should be serious about it and consistent about it. If we are going to try to strengthen the defensive alliance of, between the United States and East Asian democracies, then it makes no sense for us to be quarreling with them about petty matters. Uh, such as nickel and, nickel and diming them about military bases. I happen to think that it does make sense to try to strengthen that alliance. Uh, but we if so, we have to do what we did for so many decades in Europe. We have to put first things first and subordinate, uh, subordinate uh, secondary or tertiary disagreements to the overwhelming area of agreement. That's point number one. Point number two, and this is why I'm only about 75% down the road with Brett, we cannot overlook the fact that the terms on which both political parties encouraged the integration of China into the world economy had really serious negative consequences for entire sectors and regions of the country in the United States. Donald Trump was not wrong to make that point. And 
the very best and most respected labor economists have written about what they call the China shock, which they argue was responsible for the loss of millions of manufacturing jobs and not evenly spread, but decimating the entire U.S. shoe business, the entire U.S. furniture business, the entire U.S. textile business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm, I'm not in favor of suppressing the rise of China's economy, not at all, but I am against tolerating practices uh, that work to the disadvantage of the United States, which I think in that respect, uh, the World Trade Organization, uh, uh, in integration of China into the WTO and the world economy has. Even more strongly and more importantly, the idea that China should be allowed to seize the commanding heights of the 21st century economy, you know, the high technology heights, you know, which is exactly what the Made in China 2025 program contemplates, and to do so through the theft of America's crown jewels of our intellectual property and research, uh, in my judgment, is unacceptable. So an honest economic rise, yes, but not, not at the expense of the American economy in the 21st century. Uh, Linda, I'm going to be the um, contrarian here. I, I don't believe uh, that we really know whether uh, the rise of China's economy was on balance harmful or helpful to the United States. I don't think that's so clear. Yes, there were certain industries that were hard hit. Certain particular regions lost a lot of jobs. Uh, but we are a very big churning economy. We lose millions and gain millions of jobs every year. Um, and there are many positive things that happened as a consequence of China's rise, including dramatically reducing prices for all Americans for a, a whole range of products. Those are both consumer products and industrial products, which then have radiating effects in creating greater productivity in other areas of our economy. And we grew very much during the period when China was growing. So it, I just am not so clear on whether it's a straight loss for us um, that China became much wealthier. Now, there is no question that China is an extremely vicious regime. That's a whole other matter. Um, and uh, they are arguably committing terrible crimes. Not arguably, they are committing terrible crimes against their own citizens, against the Uyghurs uh, and, uh, and others. Uh, they, their one-child policy was a, was a human rights catastrophe um, and so on. Um, but that, I think, is... Um, is separate from the economic story, uh, and it it shouldn't be. Um, it, we shouldn't say that China is bad because it's rich. It was bad, and and uh, it was always an evil, evil uh, regime. Now it's a rich, evil regime. But uh, but but the uh, the fact that that it became rich is not, I don't think, um, a story that is one of their gain and our loss. What? How do you react? Well, as you, may, as you may not be surprised to learn, you and I sort of think alike on this issue. 
I tend to be much more of a hardcore free marketeer. I believe the free market on balance does, in fact, enrich everybody uh, over the long haul. And I think that trade with China uh, trade with the world has benefited us. However, there are areas where clearly China has been the bad guy. They do uh, steal our intellectual property. And the question is, how do you punish them for that? How is it you can fine-tune trade policies so that you're actually targeting their nefarious uh, deeds while not punishing them for simply producing cheaper shoes or cheaper uh, clothing. And by the way, you know, China is now having to contend in this free market world we live in with cheaper products coming from other places uh, in Southeast Asia, from Africa and elsewhere. China doesn't produce the cheapest anymore. I do think that there are two issues here. One is the economic issue. I actually believe Brett may be onto something in terms of why it is that we're seeing a kind of more uh, belligerent attitude by China, that in fact their economic miracle may not be so uh, great a miracle. And one of the things that's very clear is that they engineered a demographic catastrophe when they decided to engage in the one-child policy. Um, there are far too fewer women. Uh, this is not good, as we've talked about on this policy in any society. Um, when you have uh, many uh, males and, and too few females. Um, but there also is the question of, you know, I like the idea of an arms sale to Taiwan, but I think we also have to have greater support for Japan. Japan has to be a bigger actor in this uh, region. We've got to see Australia step up in this region. And if the United States had a coherent policy, if you had a president who was capable of thinking strategically or had people around him whom he was willing to listen to who thought strategically, I think there would be a way to, to apply maximum pressure on China uh, to stop doing what they are doing uh, and, um, and not do it in such a way that it ends up hurting Americans. Unfortunately, we don't have that president now. And I'm not sure how uh, Joe Biden is going to come down. Uh, I, you know, I think Bill Galston speaks for those who really do believe that our manufacturing uh, industry was hollowed out because of uh, China, uh, or at least in part because of that. And so I, I'm not sure that Biden is going to come up uh, with a response either. And I don't see anybody on either side of the aisle who would be able to manage what is clearly going to be the single biggest challenge to us uh, in the 21st century, which is our relationship with China. Uh, other than our own internal divisions. Well, you mean. Other, than, other than that, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that little minor yeah. threat. How was uh, the show, Mrs. Lincoln? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Brett, did you want to uh, comment? Look, I mean, I'm obviously, I think, uh, closer to where Linda is uh, as well, which is that, um, you know, the uh, free marketer in me believes that we are overall the beneficiary of cheaper products, even if they are, uh, if um, competition from China destroys certain industries, uh, it um it facilitates others. The intellectual property issue is a very serious one. And I think Bill is absolutely right to uh, underscore it, which is that China's 
um, rise in the world has been uh, underwritten, if you will, by a um, level of intellectual property theft. Actually, FBI Director Chris Wray gave a pretty good speech about this uh, the other day. Um, but a, a, a form of theft that is um, has no has no precedent uh, uh, in in uh, human history. Um, not even perhaps uh, the Soviet theft of our uh, atomic secret back in the late 19, uh, uh, 1940s. But that seems to me to require um, muscular law enforcement against Huawei or other, uh, um, other bad companies uh, that, have, that have profited from or, or allegedly profited from these sorts of, these sorts of thefts. I don't think um, the right way to do it is to engage in a trade war uh, with the Chinese. And by and large, even now, and I, you know, I, I know I have a reputation as a hawk, um, we need to think very, very carefully about entering into an escalatory cycle with China that has no obvious outcome um, short of some kind of military confrontation when we stand a fairly serious chance of losing it. I, this, this, this introduces a different subject, but the travails of the United States Navy and its Ugh. weakness in particular in the Pacific, yeah. I think that you know, a serious leader ought to consider um, before risking sort of stumbling into a confrontation in a place like uh, the South China Seas. I wrote a column uh, in 2019 uh, wondering whether the U.S. military uh, wasn't increasingly resembling the French army at Agincourt in having all the wrong weapons uh, uh, in, 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 in <laughs> at that technological moment in time. And mm -hmm. we, run, we run similar risks uh, now. So, uh, you know, this is, the, these are, at some point, um, uh, the stuff was going to get real during the Trump administration. And 2020 turned out to be the year when it happened. We have one catastrophe on our hands in the form of a pandemic. I don't think we need the, a second one in the form of uh, a military confrontation that um, we're not uh, necessarily prepared to fight and win. I'll just add one thing that I suspect everybody um, around this table, this metaphorical table would agree with. And that is that one strength we do have vis-a-vis -vis China that this administration has done its best to undermine is that we still are a hub for international brains. Lots of really brilliant people from all over the world want to come here to study and to live and to work. And we should be facilitating that to to the to the nth degree, so that we can, uh, first of all, it's good for us in general, but also because it's very important vis-a-vis -vis China and the fight for artificial intelligence and various other kinds of uh, cyber uh, uh, warfare things that will be very important uh, in the 21st century. And uh, the, this this president, of course, has done the reverse, and hopefully that can be uh, fixed. Um, Bill, did you want to uh, comment I just also? I sure do, and but I don't. I know there are other topics, so I'll just keep this to one sentence. Okay. Uh, there is a distinction 
between a containment policy and an escalatory cycle, a distinction writ large for decades in the coalition that we constructed after World War II, not to wage war with the Soviet Union, but to contain its influence. Those two should not be conflated. Oh, absolutely. Um, Brett, one, one more short comment before we move on. Um, my short comment is I'm always both um, relieved and um, uh, almost I almost feel smug at the extent to which uh, Bill Galston reflects my own, <laughs> my own views. <laughs> must be doing something right. <laughs> uh, it's like old times. You guys used to be uh, uh, at the same paper. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a different story. Story. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So let's have a few um, comments about uh, about the never Trumpers, never Trumpers, uh, which some of us have been labeled, whether it fits or not, um, are having a moment. There are lots of stories in the press about their influence. There are two big groups that are getting a lot of play. One is, of course, the Lincoln Project. Uh, that was. Um, it's the project of uh, George Conway, Steve Schmidt, John Weaver, and Rick Wilson. They are running ads. They are needling pr uh, President Trump, trying to get under his skin, succeeding. Um, and then there are there's the Republican Voters Against Trump, which is uh, the parent organization also um, of the Bulwark, and that is um, Sarah Longwell, Bill Kristol, Mike Murphy, and Tim Miller, and they are running these ads that um, feature Republicans uh, recording themselves and explaining that they voted for Trump in 2016, or most of them, and uh, why they feel they cannot uh, in 2020. Um, so now there's a debate. Um, Republican voters against Trump, uh, Linda, are, um, has not taken the position that all Republicans should be uh, voted out of office, uh, merely that Trump should not be reelected. Um, the Lincoln Project has a different view. They think that they take a scorched earth approach. Um, what do you think? Well, I'm uh, I'm very torn on it. I have to tell you, if I lived in Colorado, if I were voting in Colorado this year instead of Maryland, I have homes in both places, uh, I would vote for Cory Gardner. Um, so, you know, I, I find it hard to vote for a Democrat uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, many of the policies that I am most emotionally attached to, like immigration reform, I know will only happen if the Democrats take control of the Senate. So I guess if I were waving a magic wand, what I would like to see happen in 2020 is the Republicans lose the Senate, Republicans lose the White House, and that in 2022, that there be a reversal in the Senate and that the Republicans uh, gain back control, because I do think there will need to be some sort of check uh, on Joe Biden. Uh, it isn't an easy, it isn't an easy call. Um, I think the Republicans and their leadership, uh, Mitch McConnell and the way he has led the United States Senate, uh, particularly in this era of coronavirus, um, has been appalling. And so, you know, maybe, maybe it's time for them to go, but I personally would have trouble voting for um, a Democrat. 
Bill, uh, I know you're, you would have no problem voting Democratic ticket as a Democrat, but I'd like you to analyze this uh, as a political scientist. Uh, uh, when one party goes nuts, the usual response of the other party is not to become the soul of sweet reason, but to also go nuts in the other direction. Um how do you see, what do you think is the best path towards political sanity? Is it is it for the Republicans to suffer a terrible drubbing and then sort of shake themselves off and say, well, that didn't work out and, and change course? Or do you think uh, that that only creates a Trumpier Republican party that, uh, you know, has been purged of all the reasonable Republicans left? Uh this is a matter of political judgment, but for what it's worth, I will give you mine. <laughs> and that is that uh, I'm interested in a course over the next few years that will give someone like Larry Hogan a fighting chance of contending successfully for the nomination of uh, the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. I don't think that's going to happen unless substantial numbers of Republicans are persuaded, not through logic and argument, but through bitter experience, that the Trump approach is a political cul-de-sac. Uh, and I think that, that that lesson needs to be conveyed. I speak as a Democrat whose party needed to lose three consecutive national elections in the 1980s before we finally figured out that we had to change course pretty fundamentally. Uh, and I think the Republican Party is going to, is going to need to learn uh, the lessons of experience. Damon, um, there was a meeting of the Republican conference this week at which Lynn Cheney was chastised by Jim Jordan and... Uh, and uh, Liz Cheney, sorry, uh, um, chastised by Jim Jordan and Matt Gates for being insufficiently loyal to the great orange God. Um, that <laughs> seems to be the mood among many members of the party. Um, do you agree with, uh, with Bill? Well, I certainly agree with Bill in, in, in hoping for a major drubbing, I do think. I do think that the Republican Party needs to lose and lose massively in order for them to uh, change course to some extent. I guess where I might uh, disagree with, with Bill a little bit is that I have absolutely, I, I see absolutely no path to Larry Hogan having a the, even the remotest chance of getting the Republican nomination ever in my, in the foreseeable future. I think there are two levels going on here. One is the kind of move to the populist right, which is there are people in the party, uh, especially people like Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio and a few others, uh, mostly in the Senate, who are trying to develop a kind of policy response to the populist critique of a lot of kind of Reagan era approaches to things. And I think that that is one issue and that going in the Larry Hogan direction doesn't really speak to those energies whatsoever. Then there's the other level, which is the distinctly Trump stuff, which has to do with corruption, incompetence, um, 
a politics reduced to just kind of Twitter trolling, um, a, a total willful ignorance. Uh, you know, like his statements, you could pick one every day, but his ongoing uh, insistence that the problem with the coronavirus is that we're testing too much, as if if we tested less and had fewer positive results, that somehow the virus would be less bad. I mean, things that are that are totally like, you know, you don't even want a guy like that running your Atlantic City casino because he'd bankrupt it. Oh, yeah, he did. That. Um, <laughs> so I think a major drubbing would at least teach voters that maybe, you know, even if you don't want to go back to kind of Reagan era mixture of economic and social and military policies in the same combination, that if you're going to go populist, right, nationalist, you have to at least pick someone who can govern competently. And I think, I mean, I don't, I, I will, I would never vote for Josh Hawley and probably wouldn't vote for the Rubio uh, who's trying to remake himself as a populist. But I think, would I worry to the same extent that I do every single day under Trump that we're led by someone who's about 50,000 times outmatched by the job? No, I, I think they could be competent presidents. And that for me is by far the most important thing. The ideological and policy differences I think are wide open and some of them could be pursued by Democrats and others by Republicans. Um, what I want is the party to learn that, oh, we, we can't we can't uh, vote for and and make another president who's basically just a reality show con man. Brett, it's possible that if Trump loses narrowly, uh, the Republicans will say that it was a combination of the deep state and the media and the never Trumpers who did him in and, you know, illegal voting and you name it. And they will just burrow down even more ferociously into their conspiratorial little cocoon. Um, whereas if they have a huge drubbing, uh, it will like a two by four against the forehead uh, cause them to rethink. What, what's your view? Uh, I'm 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 for the two by four um, mm -hmm. because my fear is that um, whatever Trump's fate, that Trumpism will become the uh, s sort of the signature of the Republican Party for the next twenty years, in the way that Reaganism became it for uh, the decades after Reagan uh, left office. And that's catastrophic, not only for the Republican Party, but for the country itself. Every democracy needs a healthy conservative movement. Um, conservatism is as much a, a, a matter of psychology as it is of um, ideology. And you want a party that is in the mold of um, Reagan and Thatcher, uh, not in the, in the mold of um, Le Pen, uh, or Trump. Um, so the only, uh, the only cure I see is a um, victory by the Democrats of a magnitude, you know, to compare to Reagan's victory in 84 or Bush's in 88, um, so that the Republican Party is never tempted to repeat this uh, calamitous experiment. Um, Am I hopeful? Uh, who knows? I don't know. But uh, but I, I'm certainly going to be voting Democratic in the fall. Uh, 
Yeah, I I agree. Um, and I will too. Straight ticket. Bill, did you want one more word on this or should we go to our final segment? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, you didn't, know, you didn't know you I'm, had your hand up. Okay. No, Never I didn't. Know. Okay. Very good. We'll move on to our final segment. Something want, well, since I've got you, Bill, why don't you go first? Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to cite two things quickly. First of all, uh, while we were uh, doing our podcast today, a survey from Florida just came out that showed Biden going out to a 13 point lead over Trump. Uh, if that's any if that's anywhere close to the truth, uh, then uh, the arrow is pointing pretty strongly in favor uh, towards the drubbing, yep, as yep. opposed to the, the the narrow defeat. I mean, thirteen points in Florida is insane, uh, <laughs> and obviously it'll have to be tested against other evidence. Point number two: I don't often read a 55-page, densely argued law review article and end up chilled to the bone. But I've had that experience in the past 48 hours. One of the country's leading election experts, whose name is Edward Foley, a professor at Ohio State University, a few months ago published an article uh, called Preparing for a Disputed Presidential Election. Uh, And it goes through the various scenarios that would ensue if President Trump, who's on record as thinking that mail-in ballots are inherently fraudulent, uh, pursues the route of getting key contested states to send more than one slate of electors to the Congress of the United States. And there is no easy resolution for this problem and the Constitution doesn't do the trick. The existing laws don't do the trick either. Truly frightening. Okay. Damon. Well, um, I, I forget if we talked about this last time as part of the discussion about cancel culture and related issues, and especially journalism. But one of the events from last week along those lines was Andrew Sullivan being pushed out of New York Magazine. Uh, he announced last Friday Uh, that he would be restarting his old blog on a kind of weekly basis, uh, which I'm very happy to support. Um, But uh, almost as if he were himself trolling New York Magazine after being pushed out, uh, the current issue has a beautiful long essay by Andrew titled, A Plague is an Apocalypse, but it can bring a new world. Uh, and it, it really, you know, obviously this had been in the can for quite a while and they pushed him out before it appeared anyway. So it seems sort of fitting that his last say is uh, an essay of such high quality. It's very moving. It's Andrew at his very best. So I urge readers to take a look for it on the New York uh, Magazine website and uh, then look for Andrew elsewhere back at his old blog uh, now called the, the Weekly Dish. Thanks. We'll do. Linda Chavez. Well, your final. well, my final thing will be going back to something you said a little bit earlier, and that was about um, immigration and international students and our being able to attract the best and the brightest in the world to come study here, some of them to stay here. Well, there's an article on the front page of the Washington, or not the front page, but on the Washington Post uh, website says the pandemic has damaged the appeal of studying in the United States for some international students. And it talks about 
uh, the way in which some students who are already here left, went back home in March, they're not sure they want to come back. Uh, and it is not just the pandemic. It's also the worry that they might be deported at some time, that if their uh, classes are canceled, uh, even, you know, the administration has uh, been, uh, you know, spoken out of both sides of its mouth on this issue. And I guess what what worries me is that one of the reasons we have the finest institutions of higher learning in the world is because we take the world and we take the best and the brightest from around the world. And with America's reputation being tarnished in the way it is, one wonders whether or not, you know, 10 years now from now, the Nobel laureate list is going to include as many Americans uh, as it currently does, because we've been basically uh, giving absolutely the wrong message to those best and brightest who want to come here. Or will those brilliant students from elsewhere look at this country and say it's an S-hole country now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Brett, what are, what are your final recommendations or thoughts? My final recommendation is that... Um, uh, next week is the 100th anniversary of maybe the most famous newspaper column ever written. Uh, it was titled uh, Bayard versus Lionheart, and it appeared in the Baltimore Sun um, by a certain H.L. Mencken. And uh, it was an analysis of the election of uh, 1920, which, of course, gave us that wonderful presidency, the the Harding uh, administration, but its conclusion is always worth rereading. Um, he wrote, the presidency tends year by year to go to such men. As democracy is perfected, the office represents more and more closely the inner soul of the people. We move toward a lofty ideal. On some great and glorious day, the plain folks of the land will reach their heart's desire at last, and the White House will be adorned by a downright moron. And, uh, you know, um, you just have to admire uh, someone who practices uh, the craft we all practice, getting it so right uh, at Gosh. such a distance into the future. Brett, I, I cannot resist uh, repeating a bon mot from you. In your exchange with Gail Collins this week uh, at the New York Times website, she was complimenting you on uh, the acquisition of a new puppy and saying that perhaps, you know, if the election goes the way we think and hope it will, that the next resident of the White House will be a dog owner again. That's currently not the case, obviously. And, uh, and you said that... Uh, that what was it that you were you were happy? Yeah, I think I remember it. Um, I said something like, "I have, I have nothing against having a slobbering, barking creature in the White House, so long as it's not also the president." That's it. <laughs> I thought that was worth a worth quotation. Excellent. All right, my um, final recommendation is the film, which is available on uh, various platforms. Mr. Jones uh, by Andrea Chalupa. This is a film about uh, the journalist, the Welsh journalist who uncovered the famine uh, in Ukraine in the early 1930s that was engineered by Stalin. And uh, it is 
very, very well done. Um, very hard to watch at certain points, but, uh, but well worth it. Um, it's, um, it's a story that is not, that it's not very well known. We all know about the Holocaust, uh, during World War II. There's, there's much less, uh, attention and much less, certainly Hollywood has paid very little attention to what, uh, the, the, unbelievable catastrophe that was visited upon Ukraine where millions of people starved to death. And, uh, and I was not aware of this person. I had heard that uh, Malcolm Muggeridge uh, revealed the famine. I didn't realize that Malcolm Muggeridge did it in the guardian, but not under his own name, under a uh, pseudonym or it was, it was a uh, no byline, but anyway, he didn't put his name to it. Such were the uh, pressures of the time not to be critical of the Soviet Union and the Soviet experiment. And this movie is very unflinching, <clears throat> excuse me, in its depiction of Walter Durante, the New York Times correspondent at the time, who not only did you know knew about the famine uh, and, and failed to report it, but actually covered up the evidence because for, for reasons that are still never be known for certain. He may have been sympathetic. He may have been blackmailed by the Soviets. But in any event, it's a, an unflinching look at an incredible historical moment, incredibly well done. So, Mr. Jones. Here, here. I saw it. I <clears throat> loved it. Oh, good. I'm glad. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, I have to say that the actor also who plays <laughs> the main character is uh, quite... He's one of, what, one of my say. favorites. One of my he, he also did a series. James Norton. Yes, yeah. he had he did a series which got too little play because of its terrible names. It was called McMafia, uh, and it was a story about uh, corruption in the financial institutions in Russia and England. So check oh. that out too, McMafia. I will. I will. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, one and all, um, for listening. Please rate and review us. You can also uh, comment. You can leave your. Uh, you can contact me at mcharon at eppc.org. Uh, welcome your feedback, and uh, please tell all your friends and uh, stay safe. Enjoy your week.